I'm going to have you stand this morning. We're going to do a responsive reading from the Psalms, and we're going to do Psalm 34. So I'll read all the odd verses, and you'll respond by reading all the even verses. Now, there's Bibles in front of you that are the same as the one I'm going to read from. So I'm using the, the New International Version, so you can follow along. All right, so Psalm 34. I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Fear the Lord, you his holy people, for those who fear him lack nothing. Come, my children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The righteous cry out, and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. Evil will slay the wicked. The foes of the righteous will be condemned. Father, we just want to thank you this morning that you are a God who hears our cry and you're near to those who have broken in a contrite spirit. Father, I pray today that you would deliver us from all our troubles. Lord, I pray that we would have a heart to hear your voice, that we would be listening to what you would want to say into our innermost being today. And Lord, I pray, even as James reminds us, that we would not just be hearers of your word, but that we would take these words to heart and we would apply them into our lives, thereby experiencing that truth that liberates us. I pray that we would walk in amazing newfound freedom in Jesus' name and God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to have you turn to the book of 1 Peter. We're continuing a series. Now we're here in the final chapter. I've entitled this sermon, Beyond Crisis Management to Authentic Leadership. I remember years ago in seminary, I did a correspondence course on administration and leadership. And he talked a lot about, you know, two types of, of leadership. There's one that you know, they're always responding to crisis. And I think there are people who live lives, I call it crisis management living. They're always in a crisis. You probably met people like that. Your heart breaks. But I think there's a better way to live than living in crisis. As a matter of fact, 
we're going to look at what does it mean to live an authentic leadership and why it's important that we understand God's vision for our lives and we're moving our lives along that path. We recognize that times of difficulty actually allow something to be revealed within us that shows the work of God's grace within our lives. And that's why James says, count it all joy when you run into problems because it actually is helping us see how we're really doing. It's kind of like a test. We can see what's happening on the inside. Now we've arrived at the final chapter of, uh, of Peter's first letter. And we see what's needed for survival and endurance in the heat of persecution and judgment as Peter's been writing in the first four chapters. We're gonna discover that what is true for the church is also true for the family. It's true for the nation. We're gonna look at leadership. But I want to expand that. I recognize the context as church leadership, but I'm convinced that leadership extends into our homes. You know, God, we have to have leaders in our homes. You know, we have, we're living in a parent, uh, a child-driven culture, so I'm gonna challenge parents to become leaders today. I'm gonna challenge us if we're employers to take on them the role of leader, but I'm gonna challenge all of us as Christians that you and I are leaders in the context of a world that's gone crazy a world that's broken, a world in darkness, a world that's embraced death. God is for life. God is for hope. God is for healing. God is for help. And so you and I need to take leadership in the sphere of influence that God has placed us in. And we're going to look at that very closely today. So in, in times of testing, failure stands before us to consume us. Isn't that true? And I think the last number of uh, years here, the last 16 months of COVID, really was a time of great testing. And some of us probably look back and we say, I don't think I passed that test very well. Maybe, you know, failure was a part of the equation. And yet even in failure, if we're a child of God, we can learn powerful lessons. As a matter of fact, Proverbs teaches us that the righteous person falls down seven times, but yet rises again. And that word seven, of course, is that complete number. That means that we're falling, but every time we fall, we get back up. That's a sign that we're a believer. There's something inside of us that says, I want to do the right thing. I recognize my mistakes. I'm not going to just justify my behavior. I'm taking ownership and I'm going to do something about it. Yet even in our failure, we can learn these powerful lessons and grow into the kind of people God desire us to become. Now consider Peter, the man that's writing this letter. I think he's kind of noted for a big failure. Anybody know that's true? And if you've read your Bible a little bit, we can remember to the story where Jesus is at the Last Supper and he's telling his disciples, you're all gonna forsake me. And Peter boldly makes the affirmation, yeah, everybody else may let you down, Jesus, but you can rely on good old me, Peter. I will never let you down, even if I have to die for you. And yet we know the story. Jesus turns to him and says, Peter, he says, I'm praying for you. Satan is asked to sift you. You're gonna be in a time of testing and you're gonna deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Wow, how many say that's a pretty humbling message from Jesus? And I think what it shows us is that Peter was a little bit full of himself. I think there was a little bit of a pride issue in his life. How many see it? And God has a way of negating pride in our lives. He has a way of dressing those issues in our soul and humbling us so that we recognize our deep dependency upon Almighty God. And Peter gets to that place in his experience. But you can remember uh, 
when Jesus is now arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the scriptures say something that I think has powerful significance. It said, Peter followed Jesus from afar. Now, I know that he's speaking there geographically. He wasn't just following right with them. He was from a distance. But I believe that that statement speaks more to just the physical proximity. I think it speaks of spiritual proximity. I think Peter was a little further away than he recognized in his life. And how many of us have, in our own lives, have had a measure of spiritual drift and we found ourselves further back than we really realized. And then when the trial comes, we don't seem to get it. We seem to fall apart in that situation. And that was certainly true of Peter. Can you imagine, he's sitting there, you know, led into the courtyard of the high priest, he's warming himself by the fire, it's evening, it's cool, and a little servant girl comes along and says to him, you're one of his disciples, and what does Peter say? I've never met the guy, I don't know who you're talking about, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And not only does he do it once, but he does it three different times, and the last time he's so vehement, he's swearing and cussing and saying, no way do I know Jesus. And right about that moment, the scriptures show us the rooster crows, and Peter now remembers, and the Bible says, and Jesus looked at Peter. Now, I don't know about you, but I think the look of Jesus wasn't condemning. I think it was a look of pity. And everything inside of Peter came unglued. As a matter of fact, Luke, uh, sorry, Matthew records for us, and he went outside and he wept bitterly. He recognized he had totally failed the test. And we can look in all of our lives and we can say, you know, I've had failures in my life. I, I'm like Peter. We've all messed up somewhere down the road, right? And we get back up and we move again. So I think one of the reasons why Peter had a failure was he had a wrong understanding, first of all, of what the kingdom of God was going to be like. He had a misunderstanding of how God was going to restore the, the, you know, the nation of Israel. And he had a wrong concept of biblical leadership. And we know that that's true because in the upper room, uh, Jesus you know, was waiting for them to serve, but nobody got up and washed anybody's feet, so the master gets up and washes all of their feet. Remember that? And they had been talking and arguing before they went to the upper room who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. You can already tell that they're out of sync with where Jesus is at. And a lot of times in our lives, we start out walking with Christ. We're kind of, we have the values of our society inside of us, and we're trying to, you know, get a readjusting a, a, a total change inside of us to understand the values and the principles of the kingdom of God, which are utterly different than the values and principles of our society. And that's a journey, isn't it? How many go, that's a journey. It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to figure these things out. And so obviously Peter was out of sync with what Jesus had in mind. And I think he had the wrong concept of what leadership was all about. But now he's writing a letter. He's going to explain here in chapter 5 a little bit of the role of what true leadership is all about. And he begins, first of all, in this letter by encouraging those who are experiencing persecution and suffering. And then he finishes chapter 4 with a warning against judgment. Now, I know that that's not a, you know, the top uh, theme that we hear in the church nowadays. We don't ever talk about judgment. We've really locked in the last 20 years on the love of God. But I think we need to understand that judgment is coming. And we need to understand what the scriptures teach on that. And it says here in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. 
Now, I know a lot of Christians go, well, God never judges the saints. He's already judged our sins on the cross, and that's correct. But God will judge us according to what we've done with our lives. And we're going to look at that today because I think that's an important concept. What have we done with our, our salvation? What have we done with our lives? And he says, if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Karen Jobes writes this, the exhortation to the elders among Peter's readers follows upon Peter's explanation in chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, that persecution of the church is the beginning of the sorting process by which those who are truly gods are separated from those who are not. Now, isn't that, that's an interesting statement. What she's saying, she's saying God uses the sifting of persecution to determine the true followers of Christ. Because, you know, people are not going to suffer if they don't really believe in it. People are not going to suffer if they're not really committed to it. And so when, when it gets hard, a lot of people say, well, I'm along when it was good. But when it gets difficult, I'm checking out right now. And that's what Peter's uh, telling us here, was what's, what's going to happen. Now, it's interesting, you know, it almost seems like Peter moves now from this theme of judgment to chapter 5, where he starts talking about elders, and sometimes we go, well, what's the connection? And I was reading David Helm. He wrote a beautiful commentary, and he's a pastor, and he's explaining the connected point. And he's basically seeing that Peter's probably reflecting on the prophet Ezekiel. Now, remember, Ezekiel was warning the people of God that they had abandoned God, and they were about to be judged by God. And in that book, he, he says the judgment begins at the house of God, the temple. And the first person he, that the, he's going to evaluate is the elders, the leaders of the nation. God makes his judgment there. And so how many recognize that the first place to address problems is with leaders? Because if the leaders are wrong, they're going to influence people the wrong way. So the leaders have to get it right. And so Peter now starts talking to these fellow elders, these fellow leaders, and make sure that they get what's the right approach to leading the church. Now... Uh, the great need of our hour, I believe, is for godly leaders. And when I, when I say godly leaders, don't just look at me like you're the pastor, you need to be godly. I'm suggesting that every believer is a leader today. If you're a, if you're a, a, a parent, you're a mom and a dad, you're a leader. You're influencing your children. That's leadership. You need to be godly. You need to be modeling certain things. You can't just tell people what to do. You need to be showing people what they should be doing. So you're in a leadership capacity. You know, if you're a, an employer, you're in a leadership capacity. I would venture to say if you're a child of God, you're in a leadership capacity because you and I should be mentoring and nurturing and nourishing the people around us who haven't got a clue who God is. You and I have an understanding. So we have, in a sense, a leadership role. Paul Cedar says, although our talents, uh, okay, I'm, I'm jumping over something. That's okay, I see what I'm doing. Although our talents, personalities, and gifts may vary, I believe scripture teaches us very clearly that there's only one leadership style which is uniquely Christian. And the leadership style was given to us by the Lord of the church. He has modeled this leadership style and commanded us to do likewise. It is the model of servant leadership. Isn't that beautiful? So now we know this is how we need to go about doing it. It's interesting in the context of suffering, Peter 
brings up this whole idea of leadership. He's been talking about suffering. Dr. Leighton Ford, who, by the way, is Billy Graham's brother-in-law, says this in his book, Transforming Leadership. Jesus was deeply convinced of the place of suffering and death in God's plan. This sets his understanding of leadership apart from the slick, success-oriented versions of leadership that abound in our modern world. You know, one of my deepest concerns as a Christian leader is that Christian leaders don't embrace uh, the values of the non-Christian structure of leadership. I think there are principles that non-believers get, and they're actually biblical, they're true. But sometimes we learn a bunch of stuff that's not biblical, and it's unhealthy. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, when we plan our strategies for our life and work, we do not program an element of suffering, and nor should we. It would be morbid to do that. Yet Jesus saw suffering as a fertile ground for leadership. The seed must fall into the ground and die. Now, every farmer knows that. In the spring, that's what you're hoping for. The seed will go in the ground and it will die. Otherwise, it won't produce anything. And basically, what has to happen if we're truly God's kind of leaders, we have to lay down our lives for others. You know, it was perhaps the great Augustine that said, God had one son without sin, and he has no sons or daughters without suffering. In other words, suffering is a part of life. And I've tried to bring that out through this book. It's part and parcel of living in a sin-filled world. We will suffer. And people who try to teach us that, you know, suffering, you know, we can, we can somehow avoid it. They're not reading the Bible. Because I've read it from cover to cover many, many times, and it's a part of life. As a matter of fact, it answers the question, why do people suffer? You know, and bigger questions, why do good people suffer? Or why, do, why are there injustices in the world? And so the Bible deals with this issue of suffering. Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. You will have times of difficulty. You will have suffering. But be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. So there is an answer to it. You and I can still have joy, and we can still live above the, even the demands and challenges that you know, things that are difficult in life brings. Goes on to say, dying for truth and for the world's sin, Jesus showed where true greatness lies. Those who have followed his leadership since have known that the leader who is willing to suffer is the greatest servant of all. And almost every advance in human history has been costly, achieved through difficulty and testing that was willingly accepted. Very powerful. So we come to Peter's words addressing the nature of biblical leadership. And I want to take a look at these words. And we're going to look at the first four. And then I'm going to conclude with the last verse five at the end. But first four verses, Peter writes, To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder. Notice he doesn't pull the apostle card. Hey, I'm an apostle. You guys are just, you know, elders. Do what I tell you. No, he says, we're all leaders. I'm a fellow leader. And I'm an eyewitness of Christ's suffering who also will share in the glory to be revealed. You'll notice, number one, that Peter is saying that suffering and glory go together. And I've said that over and over again. Every time you see the word suffering, glory's there as well. Also, he's, he's reminded us in the last chapter that just as Jesus participated in suffering, Paul and Peter both talk about participating in Christ's suffering. And so when you and I are really living this life correctly, we will be participating in suffering. But we need to understand that it's not a negative thing. We're participating with Christ. He's with us in the suffering. And then you and I can also understand the nature of the power of his resurrected life. 
So there's two sides to this coin called leadership. He says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, not as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. So I want to look at and identify three elements that make up the nature of biblical leadership. I think this is important because there's a ton of books on leadership, and I've read a lot of books on leadership. But let's take a look at what the Bible says. What is the true nature of a leader, biblical leader? First is the task one is called to. In other words, what is the real function of a biblical leader? What do we actually do as a leader? Well, it means to shepherd the people God's put under your care. So what are elders? Why does he use the term elder? And who are they? Howard Marshall says, leaders in the Jewish communities were called elders both in the Old and New Testaments. Thus, the development of the use of elders to mean leaders was a very natural idea. Although the elders here are contrasted with the young men, the description of their tasks makes it clear that Peter is thinking of them in their capacity as church leaders. Now, I'm gonna just say this. This is not just based on age. It's based on maturity. Now, there are some young people that are very mature, and they can be elders. They can be leaders. And then there are some older people that are not very wise. Uh, they are foolish. You know, there's no fool like an old fool, they say. Isn't that true? Now, don't get too bugged because I think everyone in this room probably realizes you've probably done a foolish thing or two in your life, right? So here's what we're learning. You know, how can we become mature? How do we grow up? And generally, elders are older because they have more experience. Hopefully you learn from your experience. And how many have honestly looked at your life and you've gone through things in your life and you can look back now and you say, you know, before I went through that experience, I thought I knew God, but now I have a deeper understanding of who he is. Or I've gone through these things and I've grown and I've learned through the challenges I've experienced. You know, hard times, you know, brings things out in our lives. And we can see the faithfulness of God helping us through those experiences. So, let's take a look here at the imagery that they use of a shepherd. Isn't it interesting the Bible uses the metaphor of shepherd as, a, as a, the nature of what a leader is? And in, and in both Testaments, leaders are called shepherds. Now, why is they called shepherd? Because they care for sheep. And sheep are a good a tie-in to people. And the reason being is we're a lot like sheep, you know, and sheep do stupid stuff, right? Come on now, how many know? The Bible says all we like sheep have gone astray. How many people can honestly say, yeah, there's been a few moments I've strayed a little bit. Anybody ever strayed from what God wants you to do in your life? Well, that's because we're sheep. We have that tendency, you know? There was a hymn that sang prone to wander, you know? Man, we can really drift in a hurry if we're not careful. We're not paying attention. We can become negligent. We can become indifferent. We become apathetic. So we're like sheep, and we need a shepherd. Uh, you know, Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd. God's described as the shepherd. So the role of the church then is to actually do what? It's to make disciples. It's to gather people together. It's to help shepherd them. Uh, 
gathering lost sheep. Karen Job says, Peter sees the formation of the Christian community as a fulfillment of God's promise to seek out the scattered sheep and to oversee them. It's not surprising that Peter is drawn to the shepherding motif in Isaiah and Ezekiel when one remembers his reconciliation with Christ. Remember that story? You know, Peter had failed. Remember we, the three times he had denied Jesus? Then you read in John chapter 21, Jesus is now restoring Peter. What does he say to him? Hey, Peter, do you love me? Uh, Lord, you know I do. He says, what does he tell him? Feed my sheep. You know, take care of my sheep. So he's calling Peter to be a shepherd. He's calling him to this role. He's restoring him back into this idea. Jesus asked Peter to feed and care for his sheep as an under-shepherd. Shepherds are there to protect the sheep from the thieves and the wild animals that are willing to destroy them. How many know King David was a good shepherd? You say, how do you know King David was a good shepherd? Because as a shepherd boy, he willingly sacrificed his life to fight a lion and a bear. You know, the lion came to attack the flock. David risked himself to go out and destroy that lion, and he did the same thing with a bear. That tells you he's a true shepherd. The shepherd is willing to give their lives for those that they're responsible to. And in that case, it was a sheep. Listen, uh, God himself shares, you know, the Lord is our shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. And David says, even though we walk through the darkest valley, we don't have to fear evil for what? The shepherd is with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. What is the rod? It's the word of God. Isn't it neat that God speaks into our life through his word? He speaks words of reassurance. How many have ever gone through a dark time in your life and you're reading the Bible and God's reassuring you through the scripture? Isn't that a beautiful thing? Reassuring, he's comforting. He's, he says, listen, even though you go through the fire, even though you're in this trial right now, you're not gonna get burnt. I'm right there with you. I'm taking you right on through. Even though there's waters are flooding over you. You know, the waters in the Old Testament were signs of, of great destruction and, and difficulty. God says, you're not gonna drown. I'm taking you through this experience. He is the good shepherd. Powerful. Warren Worsby said the shepherd leads from pasture to pasture. He goes before the flock, searches out the land so that there's nothing there to harm the flock. He checks for snakes, pits, poisonous plants, and dangerous wild animals. Ezekiel says this, speaking of God as a shepherd, for this is what the sovereign Lord says, I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. How many think that's beautiful? God is always looking out for us. He's overseeing us. He's looking into our lives. He's, he knows what's going on in every one of our lives. And as a shepherd looks after his scattered flock, when he is with them, so I will look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on a day of clouds and darkness. So obviously there's moments when people get scattered. I, I think this is a scattered moment. I feel like what we're doing right now is trying to gather the flock again. They've been scattered by COVID. It's true, that's what's happened. So we're trying to gather people back, saying, hey, you know, it's okay. Uh, God is with us. I mean, do you know how strong this motif is? Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I, I lay down my life for the sheep. And Matthew says it this way in chapter nine and verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep 
without a shepherd. So what's Jesus doing in the Gospels? He's gathering sheep together. You see Jesus teaching the multitudes. You see Jesus feeding the multitudes. What? Bread. But bread is a symbol of, of life, what sustains us. And not only does he do that materially, he's not only helping us materially, but Jesus is helping us spiritually. Isn't that great? And that's why Jesus says, you know, you don't just live by bread alone. You know, one of the great tragedies in North America is we've become so materialistic. We've ruled the spiritual things right out of our lives. And so we think that if we have all of this money and all of these things, that it'll satisfy our soul. Can I tell you some of the people that have the most are the most miserable because their souls are so barren. And they're so hungry and they're so thirsty. And so I'm just pointing this out to us. You know, you will never be fully satisfied until you, you know, let the word of God enrich your soul. It doesn't take a lot to live. You know, once you have your basic needs met, what we really need is this intense, beautiful, intimate relationship with the shepherd of our souls. Then we see the nature of the overseer. Notice that the elders were watching and taking oversight over the flock. They were, they, they, these that uh, God entrusted to their care. You know, as a church grows, we'll just pick on the church for a minute. You know, is it possible for one person to care for every person? Well, after a while it becomes humanly impossible. That doesn't mean I shouldn't be caring. I, I, I'm trying to care for as many people as I humanly can do it. But there's a limitation. And even Jesus recognized his own physical limitations in caring for people. You know what he said to his disciples? It's good that I leave. Why? So that the Holy Spirit may come. Why? So that he can live inside each of us. So the presence of God could dwell within us 24-7. Because Jesus knew physically when he was on earth he could only be with people at a certain level. But notice what happens. Uh, that One of the responsibilities, you know, even parents sometimes have to delegate responsibility of care to children when they have a babysitter. Are they not delegating that responsibility at that moment? Of course. But they're still making sure the children are cared for. They don't just walk away and go, oh, I don't have any responsibility and neglect them. Of course, they're trying to find someone that they trust, someone who will take good care of those children. That's the nature of it. And, you know, Moses now was called by God to be a shepherd of his people. How many would like to sign up for Moses' job? Oh, by the way, Moses, I'm going to sign you two million people. You're going to have to take care of them all. No wonder Moses said, uh, this is a little too much for me, God. I can't do this job. God says, no, I'll help you. I'll be with you. So then Moses takes the job on, right? Remember that? And he leads them out. And then they're in the wilderness. And boy, there's a lot of problems. You know, when you have people, you'll always have problems. And by the way, the more people, the more problems. Do you know people can get grumpy? You know, they can complain sometimes. Do you know God gets a little excited about that stuff? He says, you know, I got tired of all their murmuring and complaining. Anybody read the book of Numbers? He talks about that. But poor old Moses, he's trying to handle this whole thing by himself. And finally his father-in-law goes, Moses, Moses, what you're doing isn't good. Look at the book of Exodus. It says here, there, in Exodus chapter 18, he says, what you're doing, he says, is not good. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it. What's the key word? Alone. So he said, I'm going to tell you what you need to do. He says, listen now to me and I'm going to give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. So what's Moses doing? 
Moses is now going to stand on behalf of the people to God. What do we call that when you and I are standing on behalf of people to God? We're interceding in prayer for them. We, you know what? Every time you pray for somebody, you are, you are actually mediating on their behalf. You are an intercessor. You're talking to God on behalf of these people. That's what Moses was doing. So God was calling him to prayer. And then it says, then teach them the decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. So two other things that a leader does, and I'm gonna say this for all of us. If I'm a parent, I need to be praying for my family. Can you see that? I'm representing them before God. But then it says, I need to be teaching and instructing them. I need to explain to them why we do what we do. But not only do I tell them what needs to be done, notice what it says, and I show them the way they are to live. How do you show them how to behave? You model it. They're seeing it lived out in your life because if it's not being lived out in your life, your words are falling empty. It has to be demonstrated to people. People, you know, don't get it just because you tell them. You have to show them. And you know, you and I need to be a model. Now, can I just expand this? Now, I'm doing this, let's say, with my family. You know, let, let's just pick on our family for a minute. You know, we can sit down and say, well, I'm a, we're a Christian family. Well, you may be a Christian, your spouse may be a Christian, your kids may be a Christian, but are you a Christian family? Well, aren't we a Christian family if we're all Christians? Maybe. But I think you're only a Christian family when you take the responsibility of leadership seriously. We need to sit down with our family and say, look, we're going to talk to God together. We're going to study the word of God together. You now have a responsibility to instruct them in the ways of God. That's, that's being responsible. How many see that's probably going to have a bigger impact on your family? You know, it's really tragic when kids grow up in the church, they don't know their Bible, and they don't know how to pray. Who's, who's at fault? The parents, they didn't take responsibility for that. By the way, God's evaluating that. You know, you can be successful in your sphere of business and a total failure at home. That's a big mistake, folks. Because I'm going to tell you something. You can make all the money in the world. You can gain the whole world and lose your own family. And I've seen pastors do it, and I've seen business people do it. And it's a big mistake. We need to invest our time in people. That's what matters, and we need to be consistent. We need to be practicing it in our own lives. We need to be modeling it, and we need to be challenging people around us to be doing it. So we need to mentor. Let me move on to the second element of biblical leadership. It's the issue of motivation. You know, a lot of times people can get their motives tainted, or, you know, we can get weary in well-doing, right? Finally, after a while, we just say, oh, it's not worth it. I'm not seeing the results I want to see. I'm just going to give up. Anybody ever been tempted to quit when it gets hard? Okay. So how do you keep going? It's a good question. How do you stay motivated? We're going to talk about that. It says here in verse 2, it says, Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Hmm. So we serve not because we're being constrained by false motives, but by true motives. You know, we're not just doing it because we get, you know, remunerated. You know, a lot of people in the early church say, hey, if I don't have a job, I get paid to be a pastor. I'm going to sit down and get paid and do nothing. That's not the idea here. Peter's rebuking that false motivation. He says, no. He said, you need to be excited and willing and willing to give up your life for others. It's a little harder than just, you know, well, I'm doing it for, this is a, maybe recognition or I don't know what. 
I like what C.S. Lewis, when he talks about why we should be serving. We should be doing it because we want to. It should be a delight. He says it this way, a perfect man would never act from a sense of duty. He always wants the right thing more than the wrong one. Duty is a substitute of love. You know, I'm doing this because it's my duty or am I doing it because I love people? You know, it's like a crutch, which is a substitute for a leg. Most of us need the crutch at times, but of course it's idiotic to use the crutch when we have our own legs. Or in other words, we have our own loves, tastes, habits, etc. Which, you know, he says we can use our own legs on the journey. What he means by all of this is he's basically saying, hey, listen, you know, you and I need to serve out of love. You and I need to, you know, what we're doing for people is not because we, we have to do it. We do it because we want to do it. How many that's a big difference? Big, big difference. You know, how many know if you go, you go and you go, well, I bought flowers for you, honey, because it's my duty. How is that going to go over? Take them back. See, Patty's forthright. Take them back. She goes, you better be bringing them here because you love me, not because you it's your duty to do it, right? And that's important. We need to understand that. We serve not motivated by greed, rather enjoying what we are doing. You know, I like this. Paul Cedar shares a story. He says, you know, how many know there's a big difference between a mom telling her kid to take out the garbage and the young person going to a baseball game to play ball? How many know there's probably a different motivation there? How many know that the young person is probably more excited about going to play baseball than he is about taking the garbage out? Okay? And, he, and Paul Cedar says it this way. He said, uh, the need to be transformed into those who are eagerly playing in the game which God has prepared for them with excitement and enthusiasm, giving it everything they have to the glory of God. I like that. Because he said, you know, a lot of pastors are like the guys taking out the garbage rather than going out to play ball. And what, he, what he's trying to get across is, this, is the motivation and the attitude. We should be enthusiastic about our service for God. You know, we shouldn't, you know, listen, it should be like people are in our church family are saying, I want to serve. I have these amazing gifts and I want to serve other people. Instead of going, I, I want to see how little I can do and see how many people will serve me. How many know that's the wrong attitude? Wrong thinking. You know, or I'm serving just because, you know, it's the thing I need to do. Oh, well, I'll do it. You know, kind of reminds me of the time we went to church and there was these greeters and, and you could tell one was serving out of total duty because, you know, we came in, I, I dropped Patty off and the girls and then I came later and, uh, you know, we could hear them. Patty could hear them say, it's your turn. It's your turn to go greet that person, <laughs> you know. And then I came in a few minutes, a moment later, and then the guy goes, oh, well, and then comes over and starts talking to me. You know, it's just like, really? You know, I always use that as an illustration. That's not the kind of greeters we want. You know, we want people who like people, who are eager to say, wow, we're so excited you're here. And we are excited you're here. We're so excited that you're going to experience the grace and the glory and have an encounter with God. We want to get to know you. We want to open our hearts to you. Right? That's what it's about. It says the ultimate compensation is receiving the crown of glory that never fades away. We're right in the, we're at the end of the Olympics right now. Have you ever considered for just a few seconds, these guys are actually, you know, beating their body, exercising, developing, disciplining themselves so that they can win a medal, but eventually their fame will fade away. You and I are doing something that's going to last for all of eternity. A, 
a crown, an unfading crown. You know, the crown is an image well known in the first century Greco-Roman world. Um, for a wreath of leaves were worn on the head, was commonly awarded to those who won athletic competitions. Originally in the Olympics, they didn't get gold medals. They got a laurel of leaves on their head. They just had the, the privilege of saying, I'm the fastest or the strongest or whatever they were competing in. And then uh, Karen Jobes goes on to say, a similar wreath but made of gold was frequently given as the reward for civic benefactors. In using this imagery, Peter encourages the elders to faithful service in trying times. For their victory is sure, for it depends on the appearing of Christ, not on their own efforts. The victory they attain through perseverance is an unfading, everlasting glory. The image of a crown of unfading flowers contrasts with the withering and falling flowers of all human glory acquired apart from Christ. You know that word unfading, it's really neat. The Greek word there, it's actually a word for a flower. It's a red flower that never fades. It's beautiful. You know, so you and I, when we're serving Christ, you know what we're laboring for? Something that will never fade away. It's enduring. We're going to win this wonderful crown. Well, the final element that reflects the true nature of biblical leadership is the method of the leader. How do we go about leading? What is the spirit in which we're trying to help other people, to benefit them? Here we see that leaders are to lead by example. As I've already suggested, we lead by what we do, not just by what we say. And so biblical leadership doesn't abuse or manipulate or control those that they lead. It says not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being an example to the flock. How many know Jesus is the ultimate example? I mean, he's, he's the model. I, I just look at him, I go, you want to know how to lead? Look at Jesus. You want to know what to do? See what Jesus is doing. He's serving people. As a matter of fact, he tells his disciples. He calls them together, it says here in Mark, and says... You know that, you, that those who are regarded as rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But he said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be what? The servant. So Jesus is now teaching us how to be a leader. How do you lead? You serve people. When you're a parent, what are you doing? You're serving your kids. You know, when, when you're, no matter what role you have, you know, if you're an employer and you own a business, you're serving your clientele, but I believe you're also helping serve the people that are working underneath you. You know, that's what I try. I'm trying to do the same thing here. I'm trying to help develop the people around me. That's the goal of a leader. That's what leaders should be doing. It says here, and whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And then Jesus said, he uses himself for an example. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Leighton Ford says, Jesus had come to use his power for God's glory, and he had come for the service of others. He was not a dominator, but a developer, and he showed that the true leader uses power to make his followers twice the people they were before. What a powerful statement, isn't that? That we're here to help other people. You know, Curtis and I were chatting, not this past week, but the week before, we're on vacation together, and I said, you know, when I was in Bible college, as was my fourth year, and I was doing a paper for my pastoral theology class, and I said to myself, you know, <clears throat> I know that there's a lot of cultural expectations on pastors, and I think you have them on me, and I probably have some on myself, but you know, I wanted to discover, what does God require of me? 
Because when I get to heaven, it won't be so much did I meet your need, it'll be did I do what God asked me to do. So then I, I wrote this theological paper to find out what is it that a pastor's job is. And I came away with two main concepts. Number one, a pastor is an equipper. And that word is really powerful. And later on when I was working on my master's degree, I did, wrote a paper on what is equipping and all of the nuancing of that from you know, setting broken bones to helping repair people who had been destroyed by prior service. And it was a lot of different images. But one of the things that really struck with me, and I said to myself, okay, if I'm gonna be a pastor and I'm, gonna, I'm called to equip people and I'm supposed to train them so that they do the ministry, I'm helping them do the ministry so that the body of Christ is functioning together so the whole body matures and grows up. And I said to myself, but how do I, who's the best model to, to learn how to use my time and become an effective pastor? And you know, I chose a biblical person. Well, how many think that might be a wise decision? And I chose, I felt, the perfect pastor. And you know who that was? Jesus. Jesus is the perfect pastor. And I took a hard look at what he was doing in the Gospels. I said, I'm going to pattern my life after Jesus. And so what did he do? Jesus constantly let individuals into his life. And so I've made it a point, no matter what size of the church, that I would let individuals into my life. And people come to me individually, and I think that's great. And it's always allowed me to feel the hurt and the pain or the, the challenges or the joys that people are sharing. I've never been divorced from the, the situation that's going on in the church. Number two, Jesus basically focused on training people. How many know that? He trained the 12. And so I've tried to do that, especially with our younger staff and other young staff pastors. I've tried to help train them. That's been one of my major focuses. Or I've gone to a seminary and tried to train leaders in India. And then I went to Germany and tried to train Iranian leaders. Now, my goal is to train people. But the third thing Jesus did was he spoke to the multitudes. He taught the multitudes. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm teaching. You know, I'm teaching people so they understand the word of God. They understand who God is so that their lives can be impacted. I'm not telling you what you want to hear. I'm telling you what God wants you to hear. That's a big difference, folks. And sometimes you may disagree with what I'm saying. That's fine. Go home and wrestle with it. You know, go home and deal with it. Go home and study it. But Leighton Ford, you know, I love what he said about Jesus and what he saw in people. And here's where, you know, where my heart is at as well. Jesus could see what needed to happen in people's lives. And a lot of times what we do is we tend to look at people as they are rather than what they could be. Isn't that sad? We just don't see the potential in people. And yet Jesus did. It says Jesus could see a moral outcast or a disputable, despicable, or despised tax collector like Levi and call him because he knew what he would become. Isn't that amazing? You know, I don't know where you were at before you were a Christian, but I was pretty broken, and I probably wouldn't have been the person I picked. You know, but God saw something, picked me, and began to work his work of grace in my life. You know, he could also look at a rough and ready fisherman, Simon, and say, you're Simon, but you're going to be called Cephas, which is translated, you know, a rock. And in his vision, he saw this unstable reed man implied in his name, Simon, who would become a sturdy rock man, which is what Peter means. And Jesus looked at people in that same way. And that was the unconstrained part of his realistic vision, which took into account both the tragedy of the human condition, because you and I, unfortunately, are affected by sin. We're tainted by sin. You know, I read Psalm 36, verse 1. You know, the wicked, it says, are corrupt to the core. I know our culture keeps saying everybody's good. I'm going, no, it's not. We're corrupt to the core. And until we admit that, God can't change us. 
but he wants to. We've been made in his image. God can heal the broken places in our lives. And he goes on to say about the enormous possibility of human change by God's power. God can transform us. God can change us. That's our hope, folks. That's the hope that we have as Christians. God can do this work. Now, having instructed those in leadership to be eager to serve, to have the right motivation, and to serve to develop other people, he now challenges the followers to submit to those in leadership and have the right attitude. Look what he says in verse five. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves, all of you, elders and younger people, everyone, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. You know, I wrote this down because it hit me with such impact. I said, Peter has been telling us throughout this letter that the two important keys to surviving in hard and uncertain and hostile times is to learn to walk in submission and humility in trusting ourselves to our faithful God. If you want to get the essence of this book, that's it right there. I've just summarized the whole book. If you want to know how to handle what's happening in your life that you don't understand or you're frustrated with or you're upset about, I want you to, I want you to underline those two words, submission and humility. Go back to what he says here. He's, God says, clothe yourselves with humility for God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. And a little earlier he said submit. How many can say, if I told you the two key words in the Christian life are submission and humility, I want to ask you a question. How are you doing? How are you doing with that? You got a, a little work, huh? Well, why don't we stand as we're going to close right now. You know, I was sharing this with our prayer, my prayer partners earlier. You know, I've had, I've had some phenomenal teachers in my life. I mean really gifted teachers. One of my uh, preaching professors, a guy by the name of Donald Sanuki, and he says, you know, you can explain all of these things to people. But he said, you have to always ask yourself the question when you're done. So what difference does this make? So what difference does this make? It's real simple. Here's the difference I think it could make. How am I serving God? Am I doing it eagerly, enthusiastically, willingly, without constraint? You see, I wanna leave you with a picture today as you leave this place. And it's a picture that I many times consider in my own mind as a pastor, as a person, as a believer. I want you to see yourself at the very end of your life now. You've run the race. You've lived life. You're now standing before Jesus. And he's looking at you and it's just, there's nobody, there's no, the world around you, there's nobody else but you and Jesus. And you're looking at him eye to eye. And you know and he knows everything about your life. You don't even have to say anything. You know he knows everything. And as you're looking at that, his face, you're thinking to yourself, how have I lived my life? Because you see, that's what it's gonna come down to. Not that we're gonna be judged for our sins. If you're a child of God, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, all of your sins are forgiven. How many can say that's amazing? You will never be judged for sin. But what you will be judged for is how you spent your life. And I wanna just say this, you know, all of this life is a preparation. You may not know this, but all of your life and my life is a preparation for eternity. We are preparing ourselves for what God has in store for us for all of eternity.
Now listen to what Jesus said to these uh, servants that came to him. He said, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, come. He says, I will put you in charge of many things. Listen, faithful in a few things, I'm gonna put you in charge of many things. Come and share my happiness. Is that beautiful? You know, I've, I've read the Bible. I, I, I'll tell you what I think. Some of us are gonna be in charge of even angelic beings. That, that may even blow your mind that we're gonna actually be above the angels. God's gonna give us responsibility to oversee angels. What we're going through right now is preparing us for what's gonna happen in eternity. Now, how many say to yourself, you know, if I wanted to do well in the Olympics, I better not be fooling around preparing for the Olympics because it's gonna show up on game day. Anybody know that? Those guys that win gold medals, let me tell you something, they put themselves through an awful lot. But what we're putting ourselves through here for what we're gonna get later is so much more significant. So with every head bowed here today, I wanna to ask the question, how are you doing? Can you say to yourself, you know what, I'm giving God everything I am. Or if I'm not doing that, I want to do that. How many here would like to say, I wanna make sure I run this race so well that when I get to the end, I'm gonna hear those words. I've got something significant for you to do ahead. This whole time has been a preparation for it. Anybody here this morning would say, you know what, God's been speaking to me right now. I need to give God everything I am. I need to just give my entire being to serving Him with energy, with eagerness, with enthusiasm. I'm just gonna pour out my life for Him. I believe God's Spirit is speaking to hearts right now. I'm gonna pray for you. I will say this, you will never, never, ever regret giving yourself fully to God, stretching yourself out for Him. You won't regret that. You, people that'll have regrets are the people who have lived, unfortunately, for this life. You're getting your reward. But if you live your life fully for Christ, you're gonna gain an amazing inheritance. I'll tell you that right now. Scripture teaches that. So Father, we come in your presence right now. We thank you. We have given our lives and hearts, our energy to you. I pray, Father, that you're gonna use us because my prayer as a pastor is one day when I'm standing there, I wanna be close by you, Jesus. I wanna see every one of these, your children, coming home. I wanna be there to give them a high five. Lord, I want us to be a super team. The people that I've been overseeing, to be a super team of people who have served God with humility, deep dependence upon you, Father, and have been submitted to you. Help us to make a major difference in our children's life. Help us to make a major difference in the place where we work and in the people we come in contact with. May we so help people see the reality of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.